the new statesman. Hi, it's producer Adrian here. We're bringing you a special podcast today from our Spotlight team. And the New Statesman podcast team will be back tomorrow. Hello, I'm Alona Ferber, editor of the New Statesman Spotlight policy section. And this is a special podcast from the New Statesman Spotlight team. This episode is the third and final part of our three-part special series, Are We There Yet? How Far Have We Come on Autonomous Vehicles? In this series, we've been exploring and will continue to explore the future of autonomous vehicles, AVs, self-driving cars, and the impact they might have on the way we run our roads, cities, and the world. In this, the third episode of the special series we have produced in partnership with Weijo, the smart mobility tech company, we are going to discuss how legislation and policy are enabling self-driving vehicles. And we're going to look at the obstacles to autonomous vehicles and what we need to get over those. In the first two episodes of this series, we talked about how data generated by vehicles is already being used to do good in the world, and we looked at how far we have come on the road to EV adoption. But today, listeners, we are looking to the future. We are going to take you on a journey to the future of the car. Widespread use of autonomous cars is on the horizon. Self-driving vehicles are already out on our roads, and autonomy will change our relationship with our vehicles. But what will the new immersive world inside a vehicle be like? What will autonomous vehicles free us up to do? Will our children do their homework in the car on their way to school in a self-driving car? Will we watch films on long journeys on the motorway while the car does the work for us? And how will our devices and vehicles work together? In short, how will autonomous vehicles change our lives? Joining me to discuss this are Richard Barlow, founder and chief executive of Weijo. Larry Burns, the former corporate vice president of research and development for General Motors, who championed self-driving and electric vehicles many years ago and sits on Weijo's board. Larry is an acclaimed author on autonomous vehicles. His book, Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World, is out there for anybody who wants to read. We also have Alex Kendall, CEO of AV 2.0 Startup Wave. And last but not least, by any means, Amanda Stretton, the former racing driver, broadcaster and automotive expert. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us today. I want to start, first of all, with a question for you, Larry, a big question. Many of our listeners will never have seen or sat in a self-driving car. Can you tell us what it's like to be driven by a self-driving vehicle? Pretty much like sitting in a regular vehicle, whether your spouse or a taxi cab driver is driving it. I think that's what's so remarkable. Once you get by the novelty of the fact that there's no one sitting in the driver's seat, you realize that the car is doing pretty much everything that a human has to do to drive. Really, we're only making two decisions. How fast should we go and which way should we steer? And we have to do that over and over again. And I think what's so impressive about the progress that's been made and the development of self-driving cars is how normal that's beginning to feel for people who get to experience them. Can you paint a picture for our listeners, too, of the changes you think self-driving vehicles will make to the average person's life? Yes, I think that's the real exciting thing is it's not just about not having to drive or spend your time driving anymore. I think it's the transformation and how we're going to be living our lives, both socially and economically. Having a vehicle that you can dispatch yourself and it serves as your personal valet to run errands for you, I think is going to be a game changer for many of us. 
not having to spend your time driving and being able to reconfigure the interior of a vehicle would allow the vehicle to become a play area. It could become a place to sleep. It could become a sanctuary. And it really could change how we travel between cities in in a significant way versus flying. So I think the sky's the limit, quite honestly. Once the technology truly is proven, the sky's the limit on what creative people are going to do in terms of the experiences these vehicles will deliver for us. Richard, your company, Weijo, is all about connected vehicle data. What role does that data play in the future that Larry just described for us? Well, it's funny. One of the points Larry made was around how people could potentially be using a self-driving vehicle, say, versus a flight. And one of the things we've learned with our data is how people have fundamentally changed their driving behaviors and the destinations, the journeys they've done since the pandemic. More journeys have been driven. I've seen research recently where the conclusion is that with self-driving, there will be more journeys anyway, because people will see the the self-driving vehicle as being potentially their valet, potentially be able to do more services. What we do with the data is that we're seeing data from 90 million journeys every day. And that data is hugely valuable in helping plan infrastructure for AVs, helping understand about how vehicles are interacting with each other right now, even if there's two humans driving in each vehicle. So we see the value of data away from how some OEMs are trying to build up their own proprietary approach has been an integral part of mass deployment of autonomous vehicles. Thank you. And Amanda, coming to you now, you were a racing driver yourself. And last year, you completed a massive 800-mile, six-day, all-electric journey across Great Britain. You went from charging point to charging point around the country. Range anxiety is a big obstacle for EV uptake, as we know. Do you think that smart, autonomous vehicles are going to change all of that? Completely. And bizarrely, and it's a question I get asked very often as a driver, how can I possibly be in favour of any of this? The truth is I am. I think it's absolutely magnificent. And I think just listening to what everybody else has said about what AVs can actually offer us as a society, I think the sky is the limit. And I would always differentiate between driving on the road and racing as well. Just picking up on one other point, the interesting thing with racing is that you just want to race whatever is best. You want to drive whatever is best. I don't care. You're brand agnostic, totally agnostic to anything apart from what is the fastest. And the way I see autonomous vehicles, it's just what is going to be best for our roads and best for our society moving forward. So despite the fact that it may seem a total contradiction, I'm actually a huge fan. But I think the journey I did recently was really interesting because where what I got to do was I got to drive virtually every single brand's EV offering at that point in time, all the way from London to Glasgow. So it was a really interesting exercise in actually seeing what's currently on the market right now. But range anxiety was a huge issue. And the one thing that struck me at the time was just how illogical it was that as the driver, it was up to me to plan my journey and plan my charge stops and actually sort of structure the journey that I was going to take. When in actual fact, with an AV and with the data that is so readily available, that could be so easily done for me with my car making optimum use of charges that are available and fast charges that were on my route as well. Thank you. And Alex, your company, Wave, is developing, as you describe it, the next generation of autonomy. Can you explain for our listeners what that means when it comes to vehicles? Of course. I think everything that's been described is the essence of autonomy. And it's all about creating intelligent machines that can coexist in our society and the, the, the benefit is tremendous, whether it's the higher utilization and improved safety or the sustainability outcomes that, that we can look for in this technology. I think it's one that, that is really going to transform the way we think about moving in our cities. 
Now, in order to achieve that, I went on a ride this morning and there was just so much complexity and bustle in, the, in, in London where we're based as we go through these roads. And it, to be able to have a system that can operate through these kind of busy and dynamic environments, it needs to have a level of intelligence that can understand the complexity of our roads, deal with everything from the multi-vehicle interaction to being able to get past vulnerable road users to be able to go through incredibly complex intersections change lane and all the roundabouts that we see here in the UK, for example. So what we've set off to do at WAVE is to build a next generation approach that builds in that underlying intelligence into the system that gives the cars the ability to make their own decisions and so based on what they see. To build a stack that can see the world around it, drive in a way that can truly generalize. What I mean by that is an autonomous driving system that can learn to do things in a way that can handle situations never seen before, be able to adapt to the changing conditions of our road and go to different cities, vehicle types, and all of the different variety we see in the world. So bringing autonomy to scale is what we're looking to, to be able to achieve with this technology and to be able to do this with, uh, with the next generation approach using AI. How close does the panel think we are to autonomous vehicles being more present on the road than driven cars? Are we five years, 10 years, 20 years? Let me take one on. I, I learned long ago not to put time frames on this. We're running a marathon with autonomous vehicle technology, and there's a number of competitors in that race. But what's interesting about the marathon we're running, it's never been competed before. Don't know how long the course is. We don't know how long it's going to take to complete. Every once in a while, a new mountain range will pop up that we've got to navigate our way through. I'm extremely excited about the progress all these players have made and really, I think, need to focus a whole lot on what the vehicles can do already. But there's some things that remain to be done. As Alex correctly pointed out, it's an extremely complex challenge to deal with every situation on today's roadways. That's why the kind of data that Weijo has is so important because part of this solution and running this marathon is to be able to anticipate the road ahead. And you can do that both with historical data about the road ahead and also real-time data. So this solution is going to be a combination of sensors and AI and perception, but also very much using big data and analytics to properly anticipate the road ahead and understand what you can and can't do with your autonomous capability at this point in time. So I'm very encouraged. I would say there are use cases already today that are being done with autonomous vehicles. So it's not like we have it or we don't have it. I think it's going to be this progression of being ever more capable and innovative entrepreneurs finding ways to harvest that value that comes with this increasing capability. I would agree with Larry. I think the problem that we have certainly here in the UK with the road network and town infrastructure that we have is that seeing a scenario where we're going to have autonomous vehicles working in parallel with human vehicles I think it's going to be one of the biggest challenges, both legislatively and from an infrastructure point of view. And because it's all well and good with an autonomous vehicle, being able to sort of program it with an intelligence and a decision-making process. Of course, one thing we know about humans is they're never predictable and can cause all sorts of problems. But what I see is happening certainly soon, and I think we're seeing it more and more, is our towns and cities that have got simply space issues where they don't have the facility or capability to have the volume of traffic going through them that has been steadily growing. They're becoming driverless cities 
And I think it's in, in places like that where we're first going to start seeing mass uptake of autonomous vehicles and uh, winning hearts and minds in the process as well, because I think trying to encourage people out of cars and into autonomous just overnight, I think is always going to be one of the biggest challenges, not to mention the legislative issues and headaches that come with that as well. I think one of the things that's, that's starting to be defined better now is also the utility of AV. It's it's not just fleet and logistics, it's now cabs, but it's also beyond the start. We were, There was a discussion of, of children being taken to school and doing their homework. There's now there's a convergence of AI happening. I'm sure you've all seen ChatGPT being trialled. I've tested my child's homework on it this week. It's quite frightening how good AI is getting in terms of how to help with children's homework. So that's a completely new utility that's never been thought of. Your self-driving vehicle could also do your child's homework and could also arrange for your utilities to be dropped into the back of the, of the vehicle before it, before it takes your, your child home. The utilities are going to massively change and going to fundamentally increase the utilization. And as utilization or demand increases, that, that will also speed up the sort of one of the potential outcomes of mass, mass adoption or deployment of AVs. What do we know about public attitudes to, to AVs at the moment? Are people losing their sort of concern or fear around them, getting more excited about them? I think certainly in, in applications around hospitals, car parks and at Heathrow, there is the option to use an AV parking facility. I think as more and more of these options become available to people, I think they become certainly less frightened of what it actually is going to be like. And I think that's probably one of the first steps in encouraging certainly mass users into uh, being more open-minded towards AVs. Obviously, safety is the overriding criteria here. And I think the perception people have of AVs is being shaped significantly by the media. That's why your show is so important, to help get the story out there. I was reflecting on airplane travel recently and how dangerous it was in its very early days, extremely dangerous. A lot of people died trying to learn how to fly. And one statistic I just reminded myself of, over the past 13 years, through 10 billion passenger journeys in the U.S. air transportation system, we've had two fatalities. So this system will become safe. It's a learning curve, and it was a learning curve with a disciplined approach like the National Transportation Safety Board has taken to improve air safety over time. But we have to really make sure what we do is safe. And that's going to shape the perception of a lot of the early adopters of what we have. I agree. I think we've spoken, a lot of what we've spoken about is this future where autonomy can support a variety of use cases to create this holistic future transport, whether it's public transport, ride hail, delivery, all the first, middle or last mile. Autonomy is going to is going to transform all of these different use cases and allow us to create a transportation solution that can coexist with micro mobility and walking and cycling and everything that comes with it. I think that's going to be a you know, create much healthier streets for us, our cities, and, our, and where we live in the future. I think the interesting question is, in what sequence do we get there? Because it's clear we're not going to get that overnight. That's right. We're going to have to see a rollout build that that public trust. It's able to do this in a way that uh, introduces what, to use the airline analogy that you brought up, Larry, in a similar way where these were very scary and had very low levels of public acceptance and, and public perception of safety in the early days to today where safety is taken as for granted. You know, we have achieved near zero or zero commercial aviation deaths. And so I think that's where we need to get to. I guess the interesting thing is the sequence you get there. And so I think from what we've seen, I think that we're going to see the introduction of fleet-driven autonomy first before, say, consumer ownership, because I 
think it's important that you're able to, like airlines have been able to drive preventative maintenance here and ultimately the operation of safety critical machines. I think we need to see a similar thing from commercial fleets before this will open up to consumer ownership and for consumers to run this out of their garage. But then also, I suspect delivery applications and grocery are likely to come first before we start to see ride hail in public transport. But ultimately, we should be building this, this sort of more holistic future with all of these systems being able to be able to provide transportation that improves our streets and reduces congestion and improves the safety of, of how we offer transport services. You've all alluded to legislative and regulatory complexities. What are the key complexities at the moment, do you think, that sort of might block the development or rollout of this? One of the key ones is how safe is safe enough. A lot of people make the comparison to human level performance and we can do things to, to quantify how well we, you and I can drive vehicles. On average, people tend to have an accident causing an injury about every 100,000 junctions they drive through, for example, in the UK, I think, or about every 200,000 miles that they drive. But we're going to see a different set of challenges with autonomous driving. And I think it's really important that we establish the right understanding of what is needed to be able to provide a service that is trusted and valued by society. I think absolutely this should be a system that is more safe and reduces road fatalities than, than the current modes of transportation. But we need to think about how to build these the societal acceptance in a way that is distinct from how, as people, we operate cars today. The world has dealt with these kinds of transitions in the past. When vaccines were initially created, everybody was worried, will the vaccine make me sick? And there were companies who didn't want to produce vaccines because of the liability of a low probability event making someone who took the vaccine sick. And governments have found a way to work through that and ultimately begin to scale things that offer so much societal value. And the societal value here is to eliminate a lot of roadway deaths worldwide and get us to that point. But I also think it's going to be about providing transportation services to people who are trapped in poverty today and they can't afford to, to move out of the cities or move around in the cities and get access to the jobs. So there's so many compelling societal benefits. I do want to give credit to the regulators. My experience, and I've been involved in this field since 2003-2004, the regulators so far, and this is mostly a U.S.-centric statement, have been very open to letting us learn. This is something we're going to have to perfect on real-world roads. The easiest thing a regulator could have done was, no, 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 you can't go out there and try this. But no, they've remained open-minded. But the data is going to be so critical. And taking this back to Weijo again, having the kind of data that Weijo is able to collect, fly, I think is going to really help us navigate this regulatory pathway in an informed way, a data-driven way. That'll be important. And that's one of the challenges that the industry's got at the moment is that there's, especially in the in, with the most manufacturers, they're all building their own proprietary approach to their own AV strategies, which is not helpful for mass adoption. Everyone's learning differently. There needs to be some way of a controlled way of a competition of, of competitors sharing data with each other. That's one of the reasons we exist is to enable that. There are no standards per se in industry for automotive. There need to be standards. And that's where the regulators could help. Because otherwise there will be unnecessary deaths potentially. There will be points of safety which could be which could have been addressed earlier on if there was a much more open approach to sharing of data. No, I was just gonna pick up something Larry said about just how quick the industry is to learn. I mean, you have to remember that when the automobile first hit the roads, there was the rule that somebody had to be walking in front of it with a flag. We managed to work our way through 
a scenario like that. And I do believe that the industry, hopefully, as Richard pointed out, if we can actually come together and actually use the information and the learnings cumulatively can actually come together to to get past an awful lot of these legislative and regulatory issues that otherwise become too fragmented. Everybody thinks they're much better than average driver. And certainly Amanda can speak to this better than I can, being a race car driver. <laughs> but everybody thinks they're much better than average driver. The fact is there's a wide range of variation of capabilities of human drivers. And when we get the autonomous driving systems getting perfected, we're going to take a lot of that variation out of the system. A lot of the anticipation of what somebody coming toward me might do the variation of that, those possible scenarios is going to get reduced quite a bit. Imagine being the world's best driver and every vehicle being capable of driving as well as a race car driver like Amanda might be able to drive in different circumstances. And parking perfectly as well, which would be very helpful for everybody, wouldn't it? Alex, you wanted to come in on that as well? Larry, I was just going to agree with what, what you observed about the regulatory scene in the US and the UK. We've seen a similar high appetite for learning and trialing this technology in a way that is is safe where we've been operating on uh, public roads since 2018 have been able to learn what it takes to get autonomy to operate in a city like London and cities across the UK. We started commercial trials this year and for grocery delivery here in London, this is already generating so much learning and the opportunity is enormous. I think what's been great to see from the UK government is their appetite to proactively legislate. The last four years, the Law Commission has been doing a study on how to set up the right regulation and liability structures for autonomy and to get us a level of certainty and clarity in that that can be agreed or launched. I think that's an approach that that will really improve the ability for operators to use this technology. And the opportunity is huge, right? To put numbers on what we've been discussing, it's you see globally about 4,000 deaths a day due to due to road accidents and congestion just in the UK alone. I think it, it costs about 2% of GDP per annum. So these are extraordinary numbers that we're talking about. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So that's a great note to end on, on the sheer scale of this. But thank you so much, Alex, Amanda, Larry and Richard. You've been listening to a special podcast series from the New Statesman Spotlight team in partnership with Weijo. You can find out more about Weijo on their website.